my fellow Americans and all those listening overseas. Welcome back to Visiting the President. I am your host, Joe Fakash, and today we will be back in the Buckeye State for our 25th president, William McKinley, and his birthplace in Niles, Ohio. Now, before I get started, I had promised that any questions that I didn't get into in the episode from last week, episode 24, which you will definitely want to check out, any of those questions I didn't get to, I was going to kind of sprinkle through the next few episodes. And so today I wanted to touch on a question from our listener from the WearCamp family. This time it's Laurel. And Laurel had a question regarding the size of president's beds. She pointed out that when she had gone on a tour at Spiegel Grove, the home of Rutherford Hayes in Fremont, Ohio, and just as a point of interest, all of us in schools around here, I think it almost always was like a matter of course that you would go to the home in Fremont. She said, when I visited the Hayes house, probably in 2013 or 14, I noticed that the beds were very short. I vaguely remember maybe a tour guide saying that the beds were shorter because people slept in more upright, reclined positions. Then I recently brought this up in conversation and looked it up and it seems like that might not have been true. So I'm just asking in case I have been spreading any misinformation. And I have to feel her on that question where I might have been spreading misinformation. One of my jobs when I was a intern at the Hay Center was to give tours. And I probably said that too. And so she linked to an article. This is from Historic Hudson Valley, Truth or Myth in Early America. People slept sitting up. And it does seem like that was a myth. Obviously, there would have been some people who like to sleep in a reclining position. But When I looked into this as well, I found more people, when it came to getting their beds made, every bed was different. And think back to the 1800s, you would have a custom-made bed. And so there weren't the standard sizes that you and I are used to, where a king means the same thing, a queen means the same thing, a foal, a twin, whatever it might be. And so back then, they would have had them maybe more designed with their height and their body size in mind. And so that is one of the things that you would notice is that most of them are shorter because most of the men and women were shorter. Now, in looking into this, I also found some really interesting things. And they said, you know, that's a myth that you hear all the time that everybody slept reclining. But one of the more interesting things I came upon is the idea that the way we sleep, where we're, you know, present company excluded, trying to get eight to 10 hours of sleep, that that is a very modern adaptation, like after electricity. But by and large, people living back in the day would have been used to these kind of staggered sleeps where you would have slept for about four hours, had a period of what they called wakefulness, about one to three hours where you would be up and reading or talking or visiting. Some people would like go to each other's houses in the middle of the night for this, and then you would go back to sleep. And this was common from the beginning of time until, like I said, we get electricity about a century ago. So our way of sleeping is actually the more odd one when you look at the entire history. So most of our presidents would have slept like this, where Like I said, you would go to sleep and then just 
be ready to wake up a couple hours later and you know that's when they would get their reading or whatever done and it kind of makes sense you know when i'd read about abraham lincoln and him you know reading and getting all of these books read it probably wouldn't have happened you know between dinner and bed but might have happened in these wakeful periods in between so maybe some of you can try that out and report back to me i need my eight hour solid block and you'll know when I don't get it. So thank you for that question, Laurel. Very interesting. And like I said, I found something new out. So thank you for that. So back to William. William was born on January the 29th, 1843 in a small frame house in Niles, Ohio. He was named for his father. He was another of these juniors. The McKinleys were Scots-Irish, and David McKinley came in 1743 to York County, Pennsylvania, from Ireland. Both John and David McKinley served in the York County militia during the American Revolution, and William's grandfather, James, served under William Henry Harrison in the War of 1812. William McKinley Sr. was born in Mercer County, Pennsylvania, moving along with his father to New Lisbon, Ohio, to work in the iron foundry. He was not formally educated, but developed a huge love for learning, which he would pass on to his son, and read Dante and Shakespeare in addition to the Bible in his off time between 12-hour shifts and maybe in those wakeful moments (laughs) in the middle of the night. He rose to manager and partner, and much of that was owed to his hard work in stoicism, as I read. William married a woman named Nancy Allison from New Lisbon in 1829, and she was a devout mother. She wanted William, of course, to become a minister, and in particular, a bishop. And she raised him with those expectations, even moving to nearby Poland, so that William Jr. could have a better education, while her husband stayed back and would visit over the weekends. That is how dedicated she was to him becoming a bishop and to him getting this really good education. They were very close all of his life, and she helped with his campaigns. And the media would make all of these allusions to how close he was to his wife, who we'll talk about in season two, and then his mother. And that helped to soften the appearance of William, who could seem kind of out of remove, very formal, maybe kind of like an iceberg, and made him seem you know, much more approachable. Nancy would see her son elected president and prayed for him to stay humble. She traveled to his inauguration, and afterwards her health began to fail, and he had a special wire installed so that he could be in touch with her, and he was by her side when she died. William was the seventh of eight children to live into maturity, with four sisters and three brothers. As a child, William was known to be really fun-loving and energetic. I don't know what happened to that. His playmates and he liked to muster, pretending that they were in the Mexican-American War. He would get his military experience, all of his own, in due time. He liked to fish and camp and ice skate, riding horses and swim, and even almost drowned in nearby Mosquito Creek. At the age of nine, the McKinleys moved to Poland, where he would live for the remainder of his life and remember that was to be near a school in terms of appearance william was always very brawny is the word they refer refer to it just to be you know kind of bigger and rather short and stocky known for his very bushy eyebrows i always tell students i think he looks like sam the eagle the muppet maybe i'll post a comparison for you on the instagram and facebook page he was known to be even tempered and friendly cheerful and optimistic 
Margaret Leach wrote, McKinley was more than popular. He was beloved. Even his political opponents were attracted by the peculiar sweetness of his personality. And I would just, I need a little bit more to know where this came up because he never looks apart. He did not have much in the way of vanity or affectation and did not gush with emotion. That's what I'm talking about. He liked being around other people, in particular his family. And he liked good, clean jokes and he liked listening to stories. He liked the opera and theater, particularly Shakespeare. He probably got that from his father. And he was always impeccably groomed, refusing to be photographed unless he was perfectly arranged and ready. And he was the only president between Andrew Johnson and Woodrow Wilson to be clean shaven. He liked to smoke cigars and get this. I thought this was so disgusting. He liked to bite them in half and then just chew on them. It's just William was raised as a devout Methodist and even publicly pronounced his faith at a revival meeting at the age of 10 and became a communicant at 16. He was an active church member and joined the First Methodist Church in Canton, where he served as superintendent of Sunday school and as a president of the local YMCA. He found a Methodist church when he lived in Washington and even kissed the Bible at his inauguration. He led hymn singing at the White House, loving the hymns, Nearer My God to Thee, and Lead Kindly Light. He viewed Christianity as the mightiest factor in world civilization and recited the Lord's Prayer as he was being prepared for surgery after he was shot. In terms of education, William started at the local school in Niles run by Alva Sanford and then went to Poland, his mother's insistence, to a public school there and then to the Poland Seminary in 1852, which was a Methodist school. He flourished there under a woman named Miss Blakeless and became a gifted orator, helping to organize and lead to the Everett Literary and Debating Society. At 17 years old, he entered Allegheny College in Medville, Pennsylvania as a junior, but he had to stop because he got ill, likely brought on by overwork. And we've been talking about this a lot with James Polk, James Garfield, Benjamin Harrison, all doing the same thing. Family finances prevented him from being able to return to school, but he began teaching at Care District School in 1860 in Poland while clerking at the local post office. And we've heard about this a lot, that going to teach was something that a lot of presidents could use in between going to school and maybe going to law school or as a first job. Of course, today, our requirements for being a teacher are much more, uh, there's a bigger expectation for what you're going to be doing. But it seems back here, you could get in with slightest bit of education. During the Civil War, William answered the call and served with the 23rd Ohio Volunteer Infantry. And if that sounds familiar, that's because that was the regiment for Rutherford Hayes. From 1861 through 1865, he started as a private. He was never injured and never fell ill, and he saw action throughout Virginia and Maryland. He moved rations and was assigned to be a commissary sergeant, noted for his valor in delivering under fire at Antietam in 1862, which led to him becoming a second lieutenant and then serving under Rutherford Hayes. He was again noted for bravery, delivering under heavy artillery at Winchester, serving under General George Crook and Winfield Scott. 
He was then promoted to brevet major with his commander, Rutherford Hayes, writing, Young as he was, we soon found that in the business of a soldier requiring much executive ability, young McKinley showed unusual and unsurpassed capacity, especially for a boy of his age. When battles were fought or service was to be performed in warlike things, he always filled his place. I like that phrase, warlike things. And this brings to mind, and I know what my dad is thinking, my coloring book (laughs) always showed William serving a cup of coffee. And they made it seem like that's all he was doing was going around like a waiter at a diner, (laughs) filling people's coffee mugs. But obviously this was much more in line with what kind of Chester Arthur was up to during the war where you were having to make sure things got from place to place and make sure you know that it's of course one thing for there to be the great heroism on the battlefield but that does take a lot of work behind the scenes as well and that's what somebody like a McKinley was doing. After the war McKinley went back to Youngstown where he studied law under Judge Charles E. Glidden and then attended Albany Law School, dropping out right before graduation. He was admitted to the Ohio Bar in 1867 and started a law practice in Canton. He was quickly associated with the Republican Party and remember just how important the Republican Party was in Ohio and that Republican Party machine by this point was really divided into these different factions with, you know, Grant in one side and then down the road Garfield on another. But Clearly, that would have been the party in favor. He was elected Stark County Prosecutor in 1867 before returning to private practice on his defeat in 1871. In 1876, he was elected to the U.S. House of Representatives, which he would serve through 1891, except for one term in 1882 when he lost re-election by eight votes, and some of that was owed to some of the gerrymandering behind the scenes. As a representative, he was seen as a moderate and challenged his party on several issues, including civil service reform and what he called the interests of the working man, where he wanted to oppose big business. My friend Matt Hoekstetler asked for a trigger warning before I ever mentioned the protective tariff. So here's your trigger warning. McKinley became the biggest supporter of protectionism, believing that a high protective tariff was the best defense against cheap labor flooding into the market, which culminated, of course, with the McKinley Tariff Act of 1890. McKinley became beloved in Western states for championing silver, even though that put him at odds with his old friend and fellow Republicans, Rutherford Hayes, the leader of the Ohio House contingent, James Garfield. He served as chair on the Ways and Means Committee and began a lifelong friendship with Mark Hanna as the Republican contingent developed this kind of fractious division between on one side, John Sherman and McKinley, and then on the other side, Governor Joseph Foraker. McKinley was defeated in a bid to become Speaker of the House and then lost his own election over his protectionist policies, which were falling out of favor as Grover Cleveland swept into office. And again, the Democrats tried to gerrymander his district. So that's where we'll leave off with McKinley. We'll, of course, get more into some of these preceding events when we start talking about his rise to the presidency in season two. 
Next, we'll turn our attention to the birthplace. William and Nancy arrived to a town of just 300 in Niles and purchased this home on South Main Street, which was two stories with eight rooms, which would have been pretty big in a large basement. The McKinleys lived there for 14 years until 1852 when, remember, they moved to Poland so the children can get a better education, in particular William. William's brother James owned that home until 1859, and then the home was occupied by different people until the 1870s when a man named James Benedict built an addition and converted the first floor into a general store there in Niles. In 1890, it was sold to the City National Bank. And Nancy's family remained in Niles, so William would have visited periodically coming through in his campaign in 1896 and as president in 1899 when his mother showed him the room where he was born. In 1890, as McKinley was governor, the Benedict home itself was cut in half. Half was sent to an amusement park across the town called Riverside Park, and the other half was put to the rear of that lot on an alley called Franklin Alley in town. A bank was then built in its place, and all three spots claimed to be the birthplace of then-governor, soon-to-be president, William McKinley. None of them either completely accurate or entirely inaccurate, right? Each one kind of had a claim, but none of them were really right. (laughs) The half that was on the back lot was converted into a printing company, while the other half was made into a museum. That museum did pretty solid business, particularly after McKinley gets shot. But then the park goes downhill and the museum becomes abandoned. By 1908, all of the windows were broken and parts of the building were missing or destroyed. And the building was a home for vagrants. The printing company half was also abandoned. And then both were rescued by the Trumbull County Bar Association a woman named Miss Lulu Mackey, and she joined them together about three miles away, not in Niles, keep in mind, renaming Tibbetts Corners, this small area, to what she called McKinley Heights, and reopening the conjoined house filled with all sorts of memorabilia and photographs. Of course, that would be confusing. On the first day of William Howard Taft's administration in 1909, he approved a congressional act to build a birthplace memorial, and the National McKinley Birthplace Memorial Association, kind of a mouthful, was formed, led by McKinley's friend, Colonel Joseph Butler. The design was awarded to McKim, Mead, and White, who you might remember from many of the memorials in Washington, D.C., and some of the other ones that we've been discussing, and included a county library which was going to be part of that structure. It was built on the site of a former schoolhouse that McKinley attended just a short walk from his birth home. In 1917, that National McKinley Birthplace Memorial Library and Museum was dedicated with former President Taft in attendance. The new free memorial hurt the attendance at Mackey's Memorial, remember, three miles away, And critics pointed out that it was too far away from the birthplace, which was likely why nobody was going to it. When she died, the house fell into disrepair and again became occupied by hobos. And the house burnt to the ground in 1937. Like, what an injustice. It's stupefying, (laughs) frankly. 
the first national bank, remember, occupied the spot, and they put up a plaque inside reading, this tablet marks the birthplace of William McKinley, 25th president of the United States, born January 1943, died in Buffalo, New York, September 14th, 1901. In 1991, the McKinley Bank, which had been renamed in 1918 as a bit of a homage was bought by city national and the building was abandoned the mckinley library negotiated for the city of niles to purchase that property bulldoze the bank in 2000 and then turn that property over to the library in 2001 they decided to build a replica of the birthplace using the foundation of the original house and then images of the inside with an addition on the back for a bit of a research library and they dedicated that birthplace replica in 2003. What an insane trip to becoming <laughs> the birthplace of William McKinley. So the memorial really is something to see. You know, I can't think of too many presidential birthplaces that have this kind of a memorial for the birthplace or birth town outside of, you know, certainly the big George Washington one and Abraham Lincoln's is pretty incredible, but for the city of Niles to have put this together and for it to be functioning, you know, for half of it to be this public library. And then his materials are located in the balcony and on one side of it. And clearly keep in mind that there is competition for McKinley paraphernalia and materials since there is a much larger area in Canton that we'll talk about in season three and that's part of it too right and so with the memorial there is this giant kind of semicircle. you know approaching it it looks like you know some of the great memorials that you'd see in washington they really wanted this kind of stark area and it would appear you know from the distance it's pretty imposing with this columned area. And then in this kind of courtyard open to the sky is a giant statue of William McKinley. And then on the exterior walls are these various busts of other people who were kind of associated with McKinley, people like John Sherman, but then also Teddy Roosevelt and Mark Hanna. Warren Harding has one, William McKinley. So not just people that he knew or just Ohioans, but it's kind of an interesting collection of individuals and keeps their legacy alive as well. But of course, the real focus is on McKinley and his giant statue. And they've done a really good job of keeping it presentable and with the flowers around it. It's a really kind of striking area. And then just down the block is the actual birthplace site. And remember, this is where they put up a replica of the home. And then there is a marker there. And I'll read to you from the marker, which reads, William McKinley Birthplace one of seven native Ohioans to serve as president of the United States, William McKinley was born on this site. The original house was moved from the site and ultimately destroyed by fire. <laughs> they really cut to the chase there. The McKinleys lived here until 1852 when they moved to Poland, Ohio, where William attended the Poland Seminary. He briefly attended Allegheny College in Pennsylvania, but poor health and family financial strain forced him to return to Ohio. As an athlete, 
As an enlistee in the 53rd Ohio Volunteer Infantry during the Civil War, McKinley rose to the rank of major. After the war, he settled in Canton and practiced law, elected to Congress in 1878. McKinley favored, trigger warning, Matt, high protective tariffs, a policy he continued to support as president. As governor of Ohio from 1892 to 1896, he introduced a comprehensive tax system that levied excise tax on corporations, improved state roadways, and targeted a law establishing a state board of arbitration. During his first term, the nation was adopting imperialistic policies. It's an understatement. The U.S. took possession of Puerto Rico, Guam, and the Philippines following the Spanish-American War, and McKinley encouraged American interest in China and suggested the possibility of a canal linking the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans. In part due to his economic policy and support for the gold standard, McKinley was elected to a second term. Six months after his inauguration in 1901, he was shot by an assassin at the Pan American Exposition in Buffalo. He died on September 14th from complications of the gunshot wounds. So a very kind of informative sign there on the site. They could do a little bit more contextualizing the interior. So my visits to the site, you will definitely want to kind of check the library's information to make sure that you'll be able to go inside. It looks like it's open six days out of the week, but keep in mind that there might be special occasions and they do seem to have a pretty vibrant activity calendar. And then with the other building, you'll want to make sure to check ahead as well to see if you'd be able to go inside. When I went the second time, uh, it was closed because of COVID. And so, you know, again, that's something that you would want to kind of plan for. So my two visits, the first one came with my friend Stephanie, who you heard in that special episode. We were on our way back to North Carolina and really making a road trip out of it. We were that day on our way to see our friend Gary and Jill Sorelli, who lived in Indiana, Pennsylvania. And on the way, I wanted to stop and find the town where my grandfather was born, Ford City, Pennsylvania. So I knew we were going to go on back roads. I saw where Niles, Ohio was. Remember, this is before I had this plan to see every presidential birthplace, but I'd seen signs for it and I thought, let's just stop. And it blew my mind. This is what little Joey thought every president's birthplace should be like, right? Where it would be the center of the town everything would kind of rotate around it and it would be a real feature. You know, you would brag about that. And so, you know, of course it's much more disappointing to recognize that not every president gets that same acclamation from its city's residents, but we were kind of pressed for time. And so we definitely took photos and I'll post some of those, but we were really kind of struck by the busts of the different individuals all around and then just how well illuminated it was and so that was something that really kind of stuck in my mind now i did not know i didn't do my research back during this period i did not know that that was not the actual site so i spent years thinking i had been to the mckinley birthplace and i then found out that there was an actual birthplace just down the road that i would need to go back and and walk around for my own purposes. I'm sure I could have said I was there, but whatever, I had to go. So then in the summer of 2020, this is the summer of COVID, I contacted my fellow presidential traveler, Matt Hoekstetler, and he was game to get to visit the 
McKinley saying, because of uh, kind of confusion about which day we were going, Matt brought along his son, Hans, who was more than fine with it. I was really impressed with how much Hans, you know, really got into getting to see this giant statue and had all these questions about some of the different individuals around it. But Matt was really impressed too with the statue and the setting of the presidential birthplace. It's, it's not like any other that you will find. And Matt and I had visited the James Garfield one. And this one is of course much more ornate, but really keeping in line with that period, right? Where I think most of the presidential commemorations during the 19 teens and twenties really kind of went over the top. And this one is definitely an example of that because we were in Niles. I said, you know, I do kind of have to go down the street and see this birthplace. And so Matt indulged me. I remember his son really wanted to see a school bus parking lot. It was filled with school buses and he thought that they were really neat. So we went that way and then walked around to the front of the the street to get to see the birthplace. And it was locked because of COVID. And so we were only able to take pictures on the outside and that had to serve. And maybe someday I'll get to go back to Niles and check out the interior. But it is kind of an isolated place. So those were my impressions of the presidential birthplace there for William McKinley. Now, you know what that sound means? I was able to visit William McKinley's birthplace in Niles, and this time was actually able to go inside the reconstructed birthplace. Now, up until this point, I was able to, of course, visit the library courtyard and see the various statuary and take pictures with the bus, but I'd never timed it right to be able to go inside the reconstructed birthplace. And so made it a point to check out which dates it was going to be open. And in the summer of 2023, finally was able to make my trip. Now you will want to check their website to make sure you get it right as well. It's a free tour and you'll usually see a sign up front that will say exactly that free tours, be able to visit the birthplace. You park in the front and then go around the back. And when you enter, it will look like your standard issue city government building, uh, look like a kind of general library. But then once I talked to the receptionist there, who also served as a tour guide, she led me into the birthplace, go through a door, and it's like stepping back into time. Now, it is clearly a reproduction. They make no bones about it. Every part that you see is going to be very different. The layout is as close as they can get. The Furniture, as much as possible, they try to get furnishings that would have been similar to what you would have found. And where they do have items from William McKinley or his wife or his family, they do point that out. You get led first through the bottom level, which had a kind of front parlor, had the kitchen, kind of a formal space, then a dining area. And then you go upstairs and they have a bedroom that the McKinley boys would have shared, where the McKinley girls would have, a room containing all sorts of William McKinley memorabilia, including from his wife and his campaign, and then the bedroom of his parents. And once you go through that door, you're back into that kind of museum space in the back of the building. Now there they have even more different items from William McKinley, and you get a good sense of the efforts that that city has made in trying to preserve William McKinley's life and legacy. And so that was kind of cool. Like I, I like the idea of merging the two. If you're going for complete authenticity, this is not going to be for you. But doing the best they can with, again, a kind of complete horror show when it comes to splitting the building in half and now trying to piece it back together again, they do the best that they can. 
Now, I also was then told by the tour guide, you will want to see if you can go inside, not just the library part of the Memorial Library, but there's a museum space as well, where they have this giant stage, but then around it, they have various informational panels, some of which contain memorabilia and items from William McKinley. Did not take much time to go through that for me. Like most of the information I was pretty clear on, you know, they go through the elections, they go through William McKinley's upbringing, that kind of thing. And so I was good, but very cool, very interesting. There were a lot of people there that were kind of milling through to just check out the site. And so definitely a cool place. If you are in Northeastern Ohio and want to check out William McKinley, you can definitely do a lot worse than finding this birthplace. And the efforts, like I said, that they've gone to try to preserve as much as they can of William McKinley and his legacy. So definitely check that out if you ever get the opportunity. Now, in keeping with my theory that it's usually one or the other, a birthplace or a museum that's going to take kind of precedence. McKinley's home is destroyed. And so what is now celebrated in Canton was his wife's family's home. And we'll talk about that a little bit in season two. But their home where he did the front porch campaign was destroyed. When you go to his gravesite, however, that is over the top. And there's a museum associated with it that you can see a lot of his other personal effects. And so McKinley is one of those rare exceptions where both his birthplace and his gravesite are pretty pronounced. And it does kind of keep with this idea that for the martyred presidents, the presidents who were assassinated, there was this feeling that it wasn't just their death that was to be commemorated, but also their mere existence. And in order to make what happened to them all the more tragic, you really had to celebrate who they were as a person. And I think some of that plays into the really rose-colored or carnation-colored view that people had of William McKinley after he was dead. I have a feeling if he had just been able to retire from the White House, we'd be talking about him in much the same terms as we talked about Benjamin Harrison and Rutherford Hayes, these one-term wonders, but not necessarily as this guy whose greatness was kind of cut in half. I don't see McKinley as being necessarily great. In his being martyred, it of course is going to completely transform America, mainly because the guy who comes after him, Teddy Roosevelt, who he enables, is going to then transform the White House, transform the presidency. And so this really is a kind of bridge between those two eras. And so maybe there's something in the way we commemorate that as well. So that's where we'll leave off with William McKinley for this season. When we come back next week, we will be getting into the birthplace of Teddy Roosevelt, our only president born in Manhattan, in New York City itself. Of course, Donald Trump has joined him by being born in one of the other boroughs, but Teddy is born in the heart of Manhattan. And we'll talk all about that when we come back next week. So you won't want to miss episode 26. Remember to be checking out the podcast website at visitingthepresidents.com, where you can find photographs of my trips, other images, and links to other readings and visitor information. For this episode, my sources were Doug Weed's The Raising of a President, William D. Gregorio's Complete Book of U.S. Presidents, and Louis Picone's Where the Presidents Were Born. You can help me get the word out on Visiting the Presidents by rating and subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, as well as subscribing and liking on social media 
on Instagram, Twitter, and the Facebook site, as well as the Visiting the President's website. So that's it for this week. Look forward to seeing you next week as we get in our cars and go to visit the presidents. See ya.